Citizen sleuths are focusing on the brutal slayings of four college kids. A new Paramount Plus original docuseries. This is the start of something major. Follows online detectives as they unravel the mystery of the infamous Idaho College murders. There's plenty of places to hide a weapon. And turned it into a social media phenomenon. Where are the roommates? It is a huge night. I want the truth from you. Hashtag Cyber Sleuths. The Idaho Murders. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome into the Otzen Audibles podcast and also video stream. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel on the show as always. Today we've got a lot to break down. We are just over 24 hours until the Oregon football spring game. Eric and I will be hopefully knock on wood in attendance for this game. Uh, we are expected to be allowed in, but in today's day and age, you always kind of Cross your fingers, cross your toes until the day actually arrives and you actually walk into the building. Um, but we've got a lot to get ready for for this spring game. There's a ton to, to cover. We're going to watch some position battles. We're going to talk uh, some questions that we have going in. Shoot, we might as well talk a little bit about the NFL draft that's happened, uh, at least the first round, at least in, at this time of the recording. Um, before we dive into this, I want to remind everyone out there, if you're not a subscriber to DuckTerritory.com, why not? Uh, you can get a 50% off annual ve- uh, VIP membership. That's $448 a month. Uh, one-time billing of $53.70. Huge savings there. Uh, if you want to go month to month, you can try us out for $1. And if you're a, a current subscriber and you pay monthly, you can also upgrade and get that 50% off for your annual and save a huge chunk of change. So highly encourage you guys to jump in on that as long as it lasts. It's not going to be up there for very long. Uh, okay, Eric, I'm cha- I'm pulling an audible here. Um, I feel like we got to talk a little bit about Panay Sewell and him going number seven overall in the draft to the Detroit Lions. Kind of surprised that the Bengals – uh, selected a receiver when they could not protect Joe Burrow at all. And then you saw the Miami Dolphins also select a wide receiver uh, when they had some questions up front along the offensive line. And you kind of wondered maybe the Chargers could move up and pick a tackle and, and get Sewell because that's that, that was their need. That was their biggest need. Um, but the Lions were, as we saw on, on video, after the selection was made, the Lions like quickly made the pick and and landed Panay Sewell, uh, giving Oregon back to back years with a top 10 first round draft pick. Yeah, 18th over 18th total first round pick in program history now. Panay Sewell, um, one of the top offensive linemen the this, this school has ever produced. And I don't think it was a surprise he came off the board that early. In fact, like you said, I mean, I kind of had there was a kind of an expectation might be a little earlier. Like, I mean, I think when he opted out, the thought was maybe top three, top four. Yeah. Maybe he's even second or something. I mean, I don't think Trevor Lawrence is kind of the odds on favorites essentially since he entered school at Clemson, just because of the talent there. But yeah, no. And so like, yeah, it's, I think it's a decent fit in terms of at least it's a franchise that's like, well, maybe it's not that good of a fit because they kind of suck, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to talk myself into it being a good fit. Like, I mean, like, let's just be real about it. Like, it kind of it's kind of a bummer to see a player go to the Lions. I think that, I they're think, a program that's never been good. For, I just mean, like, like the last time I can remember them being good is when Barry Sanders was there. Like, I mean, they had some playoff 
games they played in, but like, this is not a team that ever really makes a run. So like, I mean, I, I, I guess the only, like the silver lining is the fact that he may be sharing snaps in the offensive line with Tyrell Crosby. Right. Um, and, and obviously those two never played together, but two of the more prominent linemen the Oregon's produced the last decade, probably the two most prominent linemen the school's produced the last decade or, or Tyrell Crosby and Penisal. So that part's cool. They might be playing, you know, next to each other on the offensive line somewhere or, or probably the two starting tackles for the Lions. So that's kind of a, a, a nice piece to it. But like, yeah, when there was the opportunity of more high profile situations, like he could have been either the long-term blindside protector for Joe Burrow to attack Viola, or maybe even Justin Herbert if the Chargers had moved up. So the fact that he ends up in Detroit with with Jared Goff and a team that just never seems to really figure it out, I guess is probably not like the best case. I was trying to talk myself into it. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's not a bad. It's a cool pick. opportunity. That's the way I look at it. Is yeah, it's he's just a top not. ten pick. He's going to go into a facility, into a program where he'll start right away, and he he's going to protect the blind side of say what you will about golf, but I mean, he's a guy that's played in the Super Bowl a couple years ago and has sure. put up good numbers um, in previous years. Doesn't mean he's going to be the best quarterback in the league, but I, I feel like he at least gets a huge opportunity now um, to be the left tackle of a franchise and he's a top 10 pick. And that's kind of what I'm celebrating and not necessarily the fact that he's going to a team that is, you know, predominantly one of the worst teams in the NFL, but we'll see if we'll see if, if he can be what, you know, the catalyst to, to get him, you know, to get the lions over the hump. Yeah, just the last time I think of an Oregon player going to Detroit, it didn't go very well. So especially with, <laughs> with the first round pick, so I guess I'm just not holding my breath. But I shouldn't I shouldn't kill his NFL career uh, a day later just because he went to a team that. And, and I also have to acknowledge I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan, and you're a Green Bay Packers fan, so yeah, we're both yeah. uh, divisional rivals of the Lions, and maybe don't think too highly of that, of that franchise. <laughs> and then one other draft thing, I thought it was absolutely hilarious when uh, USC. Offensive lineman Elijah Vera Tucker got selected in the draft, and yeah. ESPN pulled a couple highlights from Vera Tucker, and they used highlights from the Pac-12 championship game against Oregon. And I was, there. I was watching that, and I was like, <laughs> really? That's the game you're going to use? Because that's the game he got absolutely destroyed by you uh, by Oregon's Kayvon Thibodeau and Brandon Dorless on, on the edges. I mean, it was that was a thrashing. And so a lot of good pub from an Oregon perspective there. Yeah, I know. I, I thought that like, this is like a smaller thought with Elijah Vera Tucker, but like I heard some revisionist history on a couple of like draft podcasts saying that in 2019, some people thought Vera Tucker was more impressive than Sewell. No. And I'm going like Sewell was the Outland trophy winner and by far the best player in the conference. Uh, like, he was the Morris trophy that. winner. The, his own yeah, peers like, voted him the best offensive lineman in the conference. So like, I don't know, but uh, not, I don't want to, we don't want to spend this time disparaging Vera Tucker's career, but I, I think it was kind of, I, I, I understand your point. If it's kind of ironic to use those highlights after those guys got beaten up all day. And that was the reason I lost the game was they couldn't protect uh, Keaton Slovis. And then uh, just to wrap this up, Oregon is now going to be in a position where it could be a run where Oregon could see, you know, multiple top 10 draft picks over the next few years. And it really feels like Eric at minimum that Oregon's going to have first round draft picks, you know, for the foreseeable future, if you will, because you look in 2015, Marcus Mariota, uh, he went number two overall 
The following year, DeForest Buckner went seventh overall in the draft. This is the second time in program history the Ducks have produced back-to-back top 10 picks. Herbert last year at number six. Panay Sewell this year at number seven. Now we just have the possibility of Kayvon Thibodeau going into the draft in 2022 and quite honestly being a potential number one pick uh, or you know top three right now. And then you just kind of project things out and it's like, okay, well, maybe Michael Wright comes back for a senior year would be a little surprising, but I don't he think might, he might be a first, he might be a first round pick with Thibodeau next year. Yeah. But I'm talking top 10, like, sure. yeah, like Michael, like I think Michael might be a first rounder next year, but maybe he, he has aspirations of being a top 10 pick and maybe it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's probably not one. I think it's super probable, but it's possible that he comes back for, two more years of football and, or, or maybe a Noah Sewell elevates himself up into the ranks or Justin Flo or, or maybe a Verone McKinley. Verone's probably a little, you know, out there from being a top 10 pick, but you get what, what I'm saying here is Oregon's got options and it's not just Kayvon Thibodeau in 2022. You know, they're, they're going to have a handful of guys in 2023 in 2024 and probably in 2025 that could end up being top 10 picks too, where, now you're looking at it like Oregon could be on a run where five or six years in a row they produce a top ten pick. Yeah, I know it's it's actually hard to project past like the 2022 draft of who might be there just because there's so much time to be played. You know, in terms of seasons, and there's a lot of guys that we haven't even whose names we haven't even mentioned who could in theory be in that kind of position. That's kind of the talent Oregon has. You know, up and down the roster when you stack together these recruiting classes that are top ten, top eleven. Um, consecutive years like this, you, you have that sort of firepower to, 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 to repeat with top 10 draft picks. And I, I, I agree, Matt, I think you're right. And it's going to be probably a surprise if Thibodeau is not a top 10 pick next year. Like it's going to be a surprise. And what I will say though, like Matt, are you a little concerned with the fact that every, almost every single pick in the top 10 this year was an offensive player? I mean, I, I the one thing that I, I, I realized today more than ever in a while is just like, it seems like the the and we spend too much time talking draft and we want to get to the spring game because that's kind of the focus of the podcast. But like right. just one of my takeaways was from just just looking at the, the selections was how how many quarterbacks and wide receivers and like tight ends. Like it seems like you're they're working towards improving their passing games more than anything else. And I just kind of wonder a guy like Thibodeau, who's obviously a incredibly talented pass rusher, where does he fit? Because you look at this year's draft and it's not like one of the top five or six guys was was sure. playing a position similar. So I don't know, just something, something to keep an eye on. Maybe he's the top defensive player taken, but that's pick nine or something just because they're prioritizing quarterbacks and receivers now. I I agree with you. That That is something to, to watch. And um, defensive back for Oregon, J.J. Greenfield, uh, he I think he was referencing this when he tweeted during the draft. This is a different era of football because, like you said, so many offensive dudes – uh, got drafted and and it was also like a tight end going fourth overall like <laughs> yeah when did that gonna happen what the hell like what in the I, world I get it, but... <laughs> like that's you know that's just un, unusual and unheard of and so yeah it, it is a little different and teams are are gearing themselves up for sure for uh, the offense and, and being prepared to be one of the better offenses in the NFL but let's shift now to the spring game um, we've got a lot to discuss with this uh, let's first and foremost discuss quarterbacks and um, kind of what we're looking for, what we're expecting. Uh, Crystal ball did shed some light and you've maybe got some more information on this about 
how the reps at the position will, will be handled out uh, to the group. And then you and I can maybe discuss kind of what we're looking for or what we hope to see from the spring game. Yeah, I know I did ask Cristobal what the plan was from a rep perspective for the spring game. And before I even jump into that, one thing I want to say is it's, it's, we're still kind of awaiting official word on what the format's going to be. Matt right. asked that question actually to open the press conference, and it sounds like the first half is going to look like a football game, and the second half is going to look like a, maybe a little – yeah, it's going to look like almost like kind of two-hand touch with the running clock. And um, he's still not sure if, like, the first half of the game is going to be 1v1 or if it's going to be – you know, uh, they do some sort of draft. So like, I mean, I think so like, it's sort of unclear exactly how he didn't even have an answer in terms of how they right. were going to separate reps. But what he, here's what he did say. He said, Anthony Brown will get the bulk of the reps and then the other guys will split them up for the most part. Then we'll reconfigure this, evaluate and go into summer having a plan as well. So there's kind of the plan. I think you're going to see Anthony Brown as expected, get the, be the first quarterback on the field and probably be the one out there the most during the scrimmage. Um, you know, even though he's an experienced guy, he's still somebody who doesn't have a lot of, you know, I want to say in-game reps because this isn't an in-game thing, but like a scrimmage reps. He doesn't even have that many with Oregon and in his offense and with these players. So I think it's important to maximize that if you think he's the guy, which it really seems like they do, at least right now. So, um, yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of Anthony Brown on Saturday, and, and that's probably something that we we really <laughs> – I want to see that. I want to see how he performs because if this is going to be his job, I, I want to know more than what we've seen now in probably 40 to 50 snaps last fall and, and then, I don't know, whatever it was in the scrimmage earlier this month. I mean, what we're, what we're looking for, let's talk about this now, like kind of questions and what we're paying attention to at this position. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we're looking for, from an Anthony Brown perspective, from my eyes, we want to see him come out and be the better quarterback. It's not saying that he's going to throw for 300 yards and five touchdowns and complete 85% of his passes. Like we're not looking for this just, you know, Herculean effort, superstar performance where it's like, Oh wow. Anthony Brown needs to be in the, in the Heisman discussion now. Like that would be awesome, yeah. but it's not what we're, it's not what we're like hammering home have to see. I just want to see clear separation with him and the other guys because he's taken all the reps with the first team. Everyone's raved about him being better or, you know, being you know better than what he was when he showed up and it's his time and he's the guy that's gotten every single rep at first team quarterback in all other practices and so you want to see that translate it doesn't mean he needs to be the superstar but you need to know coming out of spring that he's the best quarterback of the group yeah i don't even know if oregon needs him to be a heisman trophy candidate no i actually don't even think that's real i mean of course they would take it if he suddenly yeah. elevates his game and he's incredible. But like in my thought, like I, I think what you want from quarterback is game management and, and obviously the ability to make the big play and, and, and have some drives that, you know, in the season where you are able to win games and, and be a determining factor. But like, for the most part, I just want to see like competent play. And like, I know that doesn't feel like it's the most to ask for, but that's what I want to see. And so, yeah, I want to see, um, I want to, well, I, I want to see him throw the ball downfield a little too. Is, is probably one thing I'll say just because I feel like that's, and I know that that's something supposedly it's a strength of his. I just haven't seen it enough yet in games to really know it yet. So I want, I want to see some of that. And I want, I want to see what the relationship he has with the receivers are just because we don't like, I was asked on the radio a couple of days ago by somebody of like, do we know who his go-to receiver was? And I was yeah. like, honestly, I have no idea. Like, I mean, like we've watched practice and we've watched some, 
And I'm sure I could go back and, and figure out like, oh, he targeted Micah Pittman more than any other receiver based upon his like 15 pass attempts last year. But like, it's not like there's a big enough sample size to know. So like, I want to see like, what, what, you know, who is he comfortable with? If he's going to be, you know, the first team quarterback, like we think if he's a starter, like who are his guys? Is it Johnny Johnson and Jalen Red, a couple of veterans? Does he like the younger guys? Is he super dialed in with the tight ends? Like those are the kind of things I want to see too. Um, and then obviously like non-Anthony Brown storylines is just like, how do those guys, A, is it an even split, like Cristobal suggested, behind Anthony Brown? Are we going to see a scenario where it's the same number of drives and pl- close to the same right. number of plays? Or is it going to be we see a couple of these guys get more or one of these guys get more? Because that would be significant, too. Like if it comes out and Ty Thompson ends up getting almost the same number of snaps as Anthony Brown and twice as many as Jay Butterfield and Robbie Ashford. Yeah, I think it's, we can wait. it's like, OK, they, they like this is their second guy. I mean, I think we can kind of read between the tea leaves as, mu- as much as we possibly can based upon some of the snaps. And then of course, how those young guys perform is, is huge. We want to, we want to see the talent. We want to see the consistency. Um, and I think ultimately we want to just see if, if they can kind of minimize mistakes because that's been the thing both Moorhead and Cristobal talked about is they want their quarterbacks to, to, you know, to not make the mistakes, not to be silly with the ball. And I think you don't want to come away being like, boy, those guys have a lot of talent, but they're kind of potentially, you know, we saw with Tyler Shuck a little bit this last year, where some of the decision-making wasn't great you want to see some improvement there from the younger guys. I think one of the, the you know position battles that we're watching um, is the backup quarterback spot. Like, cause I don't think right now, crystal ball and everyone else, they haven't come out and officially named Anthony Brown, the starter, but it's like, no, <laughs> if, if we could get as close to being at that point of official quarterback, official starter, and not actually say it, that's where we're at with Anthony Brown. Like everyone's saying he's taking the first team reps. Uh, everyone's saying that, you know, every other quarterback is taking second or third or fourth team reps. Um, everything is coming out that Anthony Brown should be the starter, but it's, it just hasn't officially been made yet. And so for me, I look at this as there's two kind of battles. One, who emerges and wins the second job? the backup job. That's like the primary battle I'm watching at quarterback. And then a trickle down effect of that is can somebody elevate themselves to get to a point where they now challenge Anthony Brown for those first team reps. Does that happen? I don't know. It may not, It, it, you know, it may go all the way through where Anthony Brown doesn't get challenged one bit. And all what we're waiting for is figuring out who's the starting, you know, who's the backup to Anthony Brown. Um, but that's kind of like from a position battle standpoint, what I'm paying attention to is who emerges out of that, that trio of, Ant- of Robbie Ashford, Jay Butterfield and Ty Thompson. And then can one of those three guys, whoever it is who, who kind of elevates themselves, will they get into the, you know, the, the, the tier that Anthony Brown is in and kind of give us a true quarterback competition. One last quote from Crystal before we move to a different position group. This is regarding kind of like the long-term nature of, of the quarterback position battle. When you have competition where everybody is still alive in it, you want to keep everyone alive and get an opportunity. I wouldn't read too much into it until we get into the fall and we get closer to game one. I'll then do my best to give you exactly what the rotations are. And I want to just, before we jump into part of this, that was interesting of like, Matt, when was the last time he said he was going to give us something and then he actually followed through <laughs> and gave us information? Because he's been telling us he's going to give us like an injury report or information on somebody. And then he never, I don't think, I think he's like 0 for 40 
his field goal percentage is not great in terms of following through with getting us what he said promises to get us. I know you're saying that in, in a joking manner, but yeah, it's it's pretty funny. Of, <laughs> it's kind of pretty funny. But look, like I, I get it, and you know, Chris Ball even said, like I asked him, like how much stock, you know, Duck fans and the media are going to put a ton of stock in the spring game and what yeah. happens in the spring game. But it's also just one of 15 practices, and how do you kind of grade what? happens in the spring game uh, against what happened in the 14 other practices. And his answer was, well, like I wouldn't put much stock in like a scheme or I wouldn't put much stock in um, kind of player personnel type of stuff. Like he was very like, I don't believe you do much at all. You're very vanilla in your spring game because why would you give your opponent, you know, a clear idea of what you're working on and what you're doing because it's televised. Like that's like the one downfall of, of the evolution of spring football to, you know, where spring games have now become an event and have become yeah. must-see TV for these networks is the the hype and the excitement and the coverage ramps up and, it, and every year gets more and more and bigger and bigger. Uh, and the level of like true football goes down and it goes in the opposite direction every year because – the coaches aren't going to go out and, and, you know, give their game plans away because it's all, everything's going to be out there. So um, that's one thing to keep note of. All right. Now other position battles of other questions um, that we have going into uh, the spring game, which players in the secondary have emerged? I think this is one you wrote about this one in your five questions. Yeah. Um, I think this is one I'm really curious about because I feel like I know where DJ James is. I know where Mikhail Wright is. I know where Verone McKinley is. I know where Jamal Hill is. I don't know who starts opposite McKinley and I don't know who backs up any of these other guys. Yeah. I think the depth part is actually almost just as interesting as like, okay, I mean, DJ James, I think, I'm still like kind of he's a starter. I'm quote unquote least confident because he wasn't a returning starter, but everything we've seen sort of indicates that he's basically taken that job and locked it down. And I think I expect on Saturday we come away saying, okay, DJ James is the second starting corner. And if we don't, that's kind of newsworthy. Maybe somebody else kind of challenges him there. Um, But you're right. Like in terms of the rest of this, it's like, okay, who's replacing Nick Pickett at that boundary safety spot. And it's, you know, the Jordan Happels, Bennett Williams is Steve Stevens is, that are competing there. And then it's the depth because I'm with you, Matt. Like I still want to know what the twos look like and I want to know what the threes look like. And I don't want to know which guys look capable. Cause I think we believe based upon what we've heard that a lot of these guys are improving and getting better and, and look like they're capable of contributing. But at the same time, this is a weird spring. We haven't seen anything really. And we didn't really right. see any, of these, none, none of these guys that we're talking about really, really played it all in the fall. Um, you know, I mean, in terms of that corner in particular, I mean, like I, I, think Triquest sounds like he's turned a corner. I, I think Jalen Davies and, and JJ Greenfield are, are getting better, but you have no visual confirmation. Conf- yeah. I haven't seen them play at all. So like, I, I do want to see those guys. And then I think obviously the big, the big question at second, the secondary is, is that safety spot. Jordan Happel's a veteran guy. Um, he's an experienced guy. He played quite a bit last year. Uh, Steve Stevens, the fourth is really highly regarded and talented in terms of a recruit, but he just hasn't really gotten it, put it together quite yet. And I, I think, ultimately I wonder if that's like kind of who they'd like to see emerge from that spot just because he does have the pedigree, but if he doesn't, you know, maybe Happel's the fit. And then Bennett Williams to me is kind of the wild card because from what we've heard, he, 
he's he's competing there, but he's also kind of rotating around in a bunch of different spots, playing a bunch of different roles. So maybe he ends up being almost more of a utility guy. Like he's your first off the bench at both safeties and your first off the bench at nickel, but he's not your, your starter ever. So he's playing a ton of reps and he's in on a bunch of different packages, but he's not, you know, he's never going to be called over the the PA announcer before the game. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious in some of the depth pieces there. And, and certainly I think we'll be watching closely kind of, okay, is DJ James strictly like, is, is he feel locked in as the, as the number one corner? And then yeah, kind of what the, the hierarchy looks like at that boundary safety spot. Is there a guy that you feel like could maybe elevate himself and all of a sudden we're talking like, whoa, now he's a starter? Like, I don't think Mikhail could ever get beat out. I don't think Verone would ever get beat out. And I don't think Jamal no. could ever get beat out um, by anyone on the roster. But the other safety spot's completely open. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities that a Dante Manning, uh, a Jalen Davies, um, maybe a Triquest Bridges emerges and beats out DJ James at that cornerback spot. Not to say that I don't think DJ James is good. I I think he's really good. And and I think he will be the day one starter, but he's kind of like the one guy I feel like that's kind of entrenched right now as a starter. But you also look at and like, if there is going to be someone that rises up and kind of surprises everybody in, in fall camp, yeah, it, it's kind of that spot. Like that one feels like maybe the, the most likely of a guy that we we know who is starting, but maybe could be beat out by somebody else. And so I, I just really, I'm curious, like you said, you don't really know what, what we've got behind these guys. And so I'm really curious to see just how good is Dante Manning? How good is TriQuest Bridges? Where does J.J. Greenfield fit into this mix? Um, can Jalen Davies work his way into the rotation and make himself have to be played by these Oregon coaches? Um, that's what I'm, I'm really curious to see. And then, like you said, you know, Bennett Williams, where he fits, he's bouncing all over the place. And quite honestly, I don't really know who, who's behind Jamal Hill at nickel. Like, is it Bennett or is, is it somebody else? Um, that, that's going to be something really interesting to watch. Uh, the over spring game and and then also um, into fall camp and, and in the off season. Um, you talked uh, just really quick. Yeah. You, I was just say really quick. You mentioned his name, so I just want to note Dante Manning. Cristobal was asked about health with guys and actually was somewhat forthcoming, which was a victory for us. <laughs> but did say that both Flo and Manning have have kind of improved, and he actually expects them to take part in the spring game. So just two former five stars. We haven't seen a lot of that that you can kind of expect to see running around out there. I don't know how much or what they'll be doing, but. Um, they'll at least be participating. Which is obviously really awesome good news for for the Oregon program. Um, Position battles to watch. I put in left tackle here, um, and I'm I'm curious. Do you you, – this is my thinking, and you can tell me if you agree or if you disagree as this is a position to watch. Okay. Um, I look at George Moore, seventh-year senior. He started all seven games for Oregon in 2020. Um, I think all of them came at left tackle as well. Um, he has 17 games in his career under his belt, but by far 2020 was the year in which he played the most. Like, I don't think you could combine 2018 and 2019 when he played 10 games and get more snaps than he took in 2020 um, yeah, or even close. close to that. Probably like maybe like a third of it. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. But 
I look at George Moore and think this is a guy that's supposedly he's vastly improved from where he was going into the 2019 season, going into the 2020 season, and now going into 2021, he's taken another big step. And, and this was a highly regarded guy coming out of Juco. I mean, one of the, I think he was the, the number one junior college offensive tackle. Um, yeah, he was by 24 seven sports when he was a member of that 2017 recruiting class. So he's highly regarded. He's got huge potential here. Um, a lot of talent, but I, I just look at this and think the left tackle position is absolutely loaded. And while I think George Moore, he, he could be starting at right tackle for all I know. And, you know, at the end, but when everything shakes out and, and, and is finalized, cause he's that good. But I look at Stephen Jones behind him who, you know, coming out of high school was a four-star recruit, a top uh, 200 guy in the country. Um, very similar to what Penny Sewell was. Uh, Sewell was a little bit higher rated than Jones, but it wasn't like they were very far off from each other um, coming out of the high school ranks. Jones has got a couple starts. He was going into that 2020 fall camp thought to be, you know, the proverbial favorite to win the left tackle job to replace Sewell. George, George Moore beat him out. Um, so you've got Stephen Jones there. You've also got the program's highest rated recruit in program history in Kingsley Salamatia, uh, a guy that offensive line coach Alex Mirabal has said has he, he's not going to compare Sewell and uh, Kingsley together and, and say one guy is ahead of the other. But he would he would acknowledge that Kingsley is on the same path as Sewell as being a guy who's in the program for three or four years and then goes on and ends up being a first round draft pick in the NFL. And so I look at this and think, wow, they've got three legitimate dudes, I think, that are all really talented, all really good, different traits, different weaknesses. I think Kingsley is probably the best overall athlete of the group, but he's probably the least experienced and he's probably the least physically developed George Moore is probably the guy that's um, the, probably the most well-rounded out of everybody, um, but he doesn't maybe has as high of a ceiling as Stephen Jones or Kingsley. Um, and then Jones is is probably the the guy that that from a physical standpoint you love the most at that left tackle position, but he's also got some deficiencies in, in his game. So I look at that and think this is going to be a battle. It's not going to be won until fall camp is over. Well, I was just going to say, I actually almost think this is going to be less exciting on Saturday and more exciting through fall camp, just because when Malasala comes back and he's going to be entrenched at either right tackle or right guard, maybe right tackle. And if he is, then Steven Jones moves back full time, maybe to left tackle and competes. Cause like, Right now, I, I, here's what I'm expecting the starting five to be. If, if there is a starting five on Saturday, I don't, again, we don't know the format. They might just have a draft and it'll be all mixed up. But if it is like an actual, like the ones, I think it's going to be uh, George Mort left tackle. I agree. Bath's left guard, Alex Forsyth, Ryan Walk, and then Steven Jones at right tackle. Um, Jones filling in for Malasala at right tackle. That's, that's how I expect the first unit to go. Um, but who knows from there? And like, the thing with Kingsley is, is, is I will be very curious just to, to see kind of what the hype is from this, from this game from him and what kind of contributions does he make? And does he get some run with the first team? I mean, who gets the snaps? Is it all George Moore? Um, has George earned that? Um, or, or is Kingsley getting some run? And I think the hard thing in terms of kind of understanding the left tackle position too is because 
I, I don't know if Stephen Jones ultimately is a right tackle or if he's more of a left tackle. And if he's more sure. left tackle, he enters the fray in the fall. Right now, I think he's fully right tackle. And maybe, again, I mean, I'm trying, I mean, this is tough to parse through because a lot of talented guys. And maybe it ends up being that they put Saul at right guard and, and Jones at right tackle. And then you've got Ryan Walk battling TJ Bass for snaps at left guard and whatnot. So I don't know. Like, there, there's a certain musical chairs element to this too of there are repercussions for moving guys around. But I think we're going to see this more in the fall than on Saturday, but I, I do think it's a position battle that I don't feel like is like resolved or anything. You've got some questions as well. Um, and I think a lot of people, and this is crystal ball has done a very good job the last three weeks of trying to downplay this as much as he can. Dennis Dodd asked this question, national yeah. reporter for CBS, uh, at crystal ball's last media availability before uh, the spring game, and you've got it in your in your five question story. Where is Kayvon Thibodeau lining up? I think that that's going to be something that maybe it's a story, and, and it could simply be a non-story as well from out of the spring game of just so much interest has has happened with Kayvon Thibodeau. I think like the first day of spring ball, coming out and saying, "Oh yeah, I'm playing outside linebacker," and then Crystal Ball immediately going, "No, he's he's still defensive end." And ever since then, it's been a back and forth, players, coaches saying different things, and we'll maybe get an idea when we watch the spring game of truly where he fits. Here's, here's what Mario said yesterday. This is probably the last comment we'll get from anybody on the, on the matter, but he said, Kayvon is doing the same thing he did last year for the most part. There's some wrinkles in the system and some things that involve him and everything we're doing. We feel that he's the most disruptive player in all of college football and to be used as such. And then asked later the same question. Kayvon is being is playing the same position as last season. It might be name different, same assignment, same disruptive nature. He probably added more things to what he does. So, like, and I here's what I think is I think Crystal Ball has already acknowledged some of the gamesmanship here with the baking kind of maybe a, a bland sort of play calling or not yeah. showing everything in a spring game. I don't think we're going to see what Kayvon is doing in in, in totality on Saturday. And my guess is that if Mario had was able to do everything in spring again, he'd go back to April 6th when Kayvon Thibodeau comes out and says, I'm playing outside linebacker. I'm no longer a defensive end. He'd say, put a hush on that. That might be true, but we're not going to really say anything about this until after like the Ohio state game, (laughs) you know, like I think we won't. So like I I still, and and again, maybe I should just take Mario at his word for like, no, maybe Kayvon is not moving around. Maybe he is doing the exact same thing. And, Kayvon got excited about, uh, you know, a couple of days of practice and he was moving around a little bit and things weren't clear with what the big picture was. And, and Mario had to kind of put him straight with that. But there's enough smoke here where I just kind of wonder if we're going to be going into the season going like, oh, he's in defensive end because that's what they say. And then he just plays only outside linebacker like midway through the season. So um, but there, there's the latest. So the latest is like, I, I don't I don't know what we'll see. But Mario is saying he's playing the exact same role as before and it'll look exactly the same. Is there any concern in your eyes that him playing outside linebacker is the right move? Like he is viewed as shoot a potential number one overall draft pick because of what he's done at defensive end. Or is this truly just, Hey, it, all we're doing is dressing it up and, and he's going to still do the same things. We're just making him look different. I, I think as an NFL, I think he's a better outside linebacker prospect. I don't think he's heavy enough to play with a hand down for four downs or three downs. You know what I mean? He's only like 250, 255. Like he said, that was one of the things he said. And like, I, part of me really thinks that this is 
maybe a little bit of a Kayvon really wants to play outside linebacker to prove he can do it to set himself up at the next level. I mean, cause that, that's what he said. He said, he's not going to be heavy enough to really move guys at the next level as a defensive end. And, and he wants to kind of be a little bit more versatile and he's got the skill set to do it. So like, I, I, I think to me, I think outside linebacker, it sounds like it's what he wants to play. I, I kind of get it on paper. I want to see it. I want to see if he can, what he can do in space, but we've seen him running like North, South, East, West. He, right. he can do it all. And he's incredibly athletic. So like, you know, and, and maybe he play, maybe maybe it's as simple as he's standing, but he still really is just getting after the passer, and we don't really see him do much different. Maybe that's what Mario is getting at is he's trying to make sure people don't think he's like, <laughs> you know, dropping into coverage every down and, right. and you know out there tracking tight ends rather than getting at the quarterback because he's obviously really good at that. But uh, I, I don't think it hurts his draft stock for him to be playing a little different spot this year at all. I think it probably helps it. And then. I think from a, a position battle I'm watching and well, this is the last position battle we'll discuss. We've got a couple other questions that we've got, but um, from a position battle standpoint, one that truly has no idea who fits where, what depth, what the depth chart is, what's the order. I mean, you could come up with every single combination out there from your scholarship tight ends and tell me that DJ James or DJ Johnson is uh, your starting tight end. And then Patrick Herbert is number two and Maliki Mutabo is number three and Spencer Herbert or Spencer Webb is number four and Terrence Ferguson is number five. And I believe you. And then you could come out and you could say Maliki Mutabo is number one. Spencer Webb is number two. Terrence Ferguson is number three. Spence, uh, Justin uh, Patrick Herbert is number four, and um, DJ Johnson is number five. And I'd believe you. Like uh, the tight end is completely open. It feels like. No, I, I, I'm I'm in with agreement with you there. Of like, I think Spencer Webb and maybe DJ Johnson are the guys that I would pick to be like the probable starters. Still, uh, I'm curious to see DJ's role in terms of actually playing on Saturday because I don't right. think he suited up in the scrimmage and. It's been kind of notable. You read some of the quotes and his name hasn't been mentioned as frequently. So part of me thinks he might be quote unquote unavailable um, this weekend. So maybe we don't see him and that's speculation more than anything else. But I mean, at this point when we don't get real full injury kind of diagnosis as a report, it's kind of hard to do anything else other than speculate. Um, so take it kind of for that. That's kind of where it's at. So like maybe that's part of what I think, but it, I mean, this really could go a lot of different ways. And I mean, my, my, my confidence is really high that they're going to have a quality player at this spot just because when you can throw on the veterans and then the newcomers together, I mean, there's five guys that I think are really talented. And I know we haven't mentioned his name, Cam McCormick's still on the team. I just don't, I don't think we can really talk about him as a serious candidate. Until we see much. him play. Because he's been three, it's been over three years. I hate to say it. I remember was rooting for him to play, but um, you know, the, the longer this plays out, it's like just kind of, you have no, your expectations are basically nil at this point. Right. But uh, no, I will be very curious to see what this looks like on Saturday. And I want to see kind of and one of the things Webb did say, Spencer Webb, when he was interviewed on Tuesday, was that there's a bunch of new wrinkles with the tight end. I, I, what does that look like? You know, he mentioned some two tight end stuff. Um, you know, I think last year was pretty clear some of the stuff Joe Moorhead wanted to do. I mean, you think about the route that DJ Johnson ran. I think every time he scored a touchdown, he scored like three to four touchdowns and they were all the same play of, you know, you kind of get him out in the, in the flat and he just you give him space to run will there be more of that kind of what's that what are these wrinkles going to look like and i know 
probably going to be pretty vanilla from a play con perspective, but I will be curious to see kind of how do they utilize these guys. And then of course, like, yeah, who's one, two, three, four, five. Do we have an idea of that? Or, or do we get into off season kind of in the same spot of being like, it seems like they're set because there's a lot of talented guys, but the depth chart's pretty up in the air still. I don't know. It's, it's certainly interesting. Um, I mean, and, and I agree with you in the fact that whoever starts, I feel pretty confident that that's going to be a guy like, yeah, yeah. You're going to sure. get, you're going to get good production. And I, I, I almost, I mean, it, it's a weird deal because there's so much lack of experience with this group, like DJ James, or I keep calling him DJ James, DJ Johnson um, is I guess your most experienced guy coming back from the 2020 season. But I would argue that Spencer Webb probably had a bigger impact from a single season standpoint in 2019 than Johnson did in 2020 and Webb missed all of of 2020 because of an injury. Um, And so you've got two guys that have got some decent amount of experience and then three guys that have zero essentially. And Patrick Herbert has played one game in his career and he was hurt all of last year as well. Um, but I look at this and feel like for whatever reason, I just feel like these are all guys and they're all dudes and they're, they're, they're going to play well. And it's just a matter of figuring out who's one, who's five. And, and then everyone else in between. Whereas I kind of looked at like last year and it was kind of the same, you know, Hunter Campmoyer, DJ Johnson, Spencer Webb, Patrick Herbert. Like I felt good about the group, but I didn't think for whatever reason that they were going to be, you know, potential stock, like a potential all league guy was going to emerge at that position. And this year, for whatever reason, I feel like there will probably be an all league tight end, whether it's honorable mention, third team, second team, or first team. Okay. Yeah, no, I know. I, it's interesting that you've got that confidence of, I, I still don't know. I mean, I, my thing is like, I could see Oregon having three of the best 12 tight ends in the pack 12, but none of them do enough sure. statistically to, to get the, to garner the attention or whatever. Um, and it's also interesting that because I kind of I, I think I agree with you, but it's interesting that our opinions of both Patrick Herbert and Spencer Webb have probably gotten better through an offseason when they didn't play at all last year. But I mean, that certainly kind of is how it feels. And, and DJ Johnson, like we liked what we saw last year. I want to see him do it again. And, and what does it look like if he's the primary guy? Can he do that for a full season? And we saw that for a couple games and he looked good last year. But is that something he's capable of? And Again, I, my, the other part is who's Anthony Brown most comfortable with in a passing game? I think that'll be a, a factor too. So, I mean, the tight end group is just incredibly talented. And then we'll wrap up uh, the podcast with your last question. And I think it's only right that we end here. And that is special teams. And you've got some questions that you want answered at that, at that spot. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you're in a spot here where I don't know how much we're going to see in the spring game because we, we don't know format. I feel really. I feel like you got a good place kicker, got a good punter. I want to see more of both of them because we've Tom Snee and, and Henry Cattleman both looked good last year, but it's again it's limited snaps. Um, so so I'm I'm curious on on kind of how those guys look, but more than anything, I want to see how the return looks. I want to look see how their coverage looks. I want to see how kickoff, just like kicking off the ball, is that improved? Are they better? You know, I mean, last year they were last in the pack, in the Pac-12 and just like straight up distance of the kickoffs. And then they were one of the worst as well in terms of kickoff coverage, in terms of like stopping opposing returns. So like, those are two things that you need to be better at. I mean, Oregon has too good of athletes to be like one of the worst teams. And, you know, like I look at special teams a lot of the time is like, 
it comes down to like who has the best, fastest, most athletic guys, the guys who get up and down the field, make plays, right. who's got those guys. Oregon should have the best guys or some of the best guys in the Pac-12 with like, you know, USC or Arizona State and those kind of Washington, those kind of teams. In fact, they shouldn't be last. Um, and, and the program should not be, you know, worst in kickoff distance either. Like that's not, that's not great. So like those are, and I know part of that was like supposedly strategic in terms of kicking it short, but like, I think those are areas to work on. And, and clearly, I mean, you can say kicking it short, maybe, maybe it quote unquote worked, but like at the same time you look at the, you know, the coverage stats and it's not like their numbers are great either for opposing field positions. So I want to see improvements there. And I don't know how much we're going to get to see in that, but I want to see that. And then I also, I just want to see who's returning punts and kicks because that's something that I think is kind of up in the air. Travis Dye said he won't be doing that in the spring. So who's primarily returning punts, um, you know, and, and do we see the return of Mikhail Wright or is it Chris Hudson again to, to as he finished last year? So certainly some question marks in the return game and then also in coverage. And I think just all in all, like Oregon has to be a lot better on special teams. Like we, we talked a yeah, lot about the boss mentioned that as well. We talked a lot of last year about defensive struggles and offensive struggles. Special teams wasn't much better. In fact, it might have been like worse than on some days. It was worse than the others, probably. And and I mean they've they've done a couple different things this year, uh, this spring. Um, Bobby Williams is still in charge of the entire special teams unit, um, but they've also pulled other assistant coaches in with the special teams to help in certain areas. And it's going to be curious to see kind of what happens. And I, I think Eric, for me, like from a special team standpoint, I don't really care where they get vast improvement. I just want to see one spot drastically get better. I mean, it could be place kicking. It could be field goal kicking. It could be kickoff. It could be coverage. It could be punt. It could be punt coverage, but I just want to see one unit where you walk out and feel like that's one of the better units in, in this category in the country. Like that's that. That's, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, no, I think that's fair too. Of just like, you want to see just improvements in, in one area and then hopefully over the, and hopefully, I mean, hopefully it's one area ends up expanding and it is a domino effect and they get better everywhere. But um, I think especially in coverage, I, I, like it wasn't great last year and you, they're too talented not to make improvements by just restructuring things and getting, one of the things I talked about is getting some of like their starters and their top, top tier guys on the field on special teams more that's a step that needs to take place. You get those at top athletes running up and down the field. They should just be improvement based upon just personnel. It's going to do it for us here on the Odson audibles podcast. Thank you for watching the show on YouTube. Make sure to click that like and subscribe button. Uh, if you enjoyed the work, make sure to also subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Google podcasts, whatever you use to listen to the podcast there. And until then you've been listening to the Odson audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.